statement that God never will never give you more than you can handle, it's really a flawed statement because it's all about what you can do. It's all about what you can do or what I can do. And what he's saying here is, look, like, man, we've tried. We've tried it. We've tried relying on ourselves, and it's caused things to go terribly wrong. We thought we were finished, dead. Like, you know, we knew that we couldn't handle it because it was beyond our strength. That's what he's acknowledging here. He's saying, but all of that, all that we went through, was really to remind us that we should have placed all of our confidence in God in the first place and not in ourselves. And he's kind of just acknowledging, like, I don't, I'm not exactly sure how this happened, but somewhere along the way, we just decided, hey, we could, we could figure this out. And he's saying that, that when he was in this moment and he found out that he did not have the strength to face his own suffering on his own, that that was when he found that God's power and God's faithfulness was completely sufficient to provide what he needed. All right, good morning. All right, so good to be together today. Um, man, just a, a great morning. We're going to finish out a teaching series. Um, it's also my birthday, so um, thanks, yeah. Uh, I had my, my wife and, and some friends threw a, a little surprise for me on Friday night, and then some of, my, some of my buddies all pulled money in and got me these sweet shoes, and so I, I'm, more, I'm, not trying to be, I'm not trying to be flashy, but um, I don't want to like be like, but I, it's just like I felt like I should, I should wear them today, you know? So uh, yeah, the cool thing is like um, I, I, I definitely feel like I'm ready for a pickup game, uh, <laughs> And I feel like a little aggressive in wearing them, like, you know, so I might preach a little more aggressively this morning, uh, like I'm going to dunk on you or something like that. But uh, yeah, it's so good to be together. Uh, we're closing out uh, this series. It's week five uh, in uh, this series called Not True, where we've been looking at a, a bunch of, of different, you know, common phrases or cliches uh, that people often say, and then just trying to figure out, you know, what does the Bible actually have to say about those? Are they true? Or not. It's a series really built on, on this idea that it seems like for so many people, uh, so much of our thinking and our beliefs are often held together by these sort of short, catchy, sticky, fortune cookie type statements. And really, they're like in all actuality, they're nothing more than uh, um, like, like some uh, superstitious beliefs. In, 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 I mean, really, really, right? And, and yet they're comforting. We say them. Um, we, we, uh, we believe these, we repeat them, I, I think really in an effort to try to make sense of life. So you're going through something and you just throw out one of these phrases and it kind of just helps frame, frame up for you like maybe why that happened or what your attitude should be like, you know, um, as a result of what you're experiencing. And it seems like most of the time when we say these kinds of phrases, it's when we feel like uh, we should say something. It's like one of those moments where we feel like we should say something, but we're not sure what to say. Um, and, and so, you know, um, we're, we're just not sure what to do here. Like, we feel like maybe somebody needs some advice or some comforting, like they're going through a hard time, or, you know, they, they um, yeah, need, need you to explain something in a given situation. And that's when we usually say these very familiar phrases, like, you know, God helps those who help themselves, or, or everything happens for a reason. Right or you know just follow your heart or all sin is basically the same or God can only judge me or God can only judge you or or uh, hey man don't don't forget that God will never give you more than you can handle and so we repeat these things we say these things uh, really in an effort to try to make sense of life we post them right we pass them along we even give them as as nuggets of advice to people. 
Um, and, and I think that, that we intuitively understand that these are cliches, right? That, 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 that they, but, but they're also somewhat comforting to us, aren't they? Like, that's why we say them. That's why we believe them, even. Um, and so I think part, partly because of their popularity, I think because of how prevalent and familiar they are, somewhere along the way, like, we can be, begin to believe that these are actually statements that come from the Bible, right? Like, isn't that something Jesus once said? Or didn't the Apostle Paul write that? Like, where's that at again? You know that one verse, you know, uh, just follow your heart, you know that one? And, and you're like, yeah, like, are those true? And, and really what this series has been built on is this question, what if some of the common phrases that we so often repeat are actually based on a misunderstanding? What if God never said that? What if Jesus never said that? What if it's not true? And so this is, this is what we've been doing over the last month or so. And, and look, there are so many statements that we often say, some that have become so iconic, so familiar, so widely used, that I think what happens is over time we begin to assume that they are true. Let me just give you a couple of like pop culture references uh, just to kind of show you how this works. Okay, so for instance, in the movie uh, Forrest Gump, did you know that in this movie, did you know that Forrest Gump never actually says the quote, life is like a box of chocolates. Did you know that? He never actually says that. What he actually says is he goes, he says, mama always said life was like a box of chocolates. Isn't that weird? Everybody who quotes that says life is like a box of chocolates, but that's not the actual quote. And like somehow over time, people are going like, like oh yeah, that's, that's what it is. It's been said so often, people believe that to be true. I'll give you one more. I am not a, a Star Trek fan. I really have to like tell you this because I'm, I'm I feel like I'm more I'm I'm cooler than that. But like, um, but some of you no I'm just kidding. But like if you're familiar with Star Trek, okay, uh, which I I just read this this week. Okay, I don't want you to get weird weird thoughts about me and, and what I do in my spare time. But uh, okay, so there are 79 episodes of the original series. You know uh, William Shatner and all those guys and and uh, six feature films. At no point in, in the entire franchise does, does one of the characters quote the iconic line, beam me up, Scotty. It's nowhere. That is not in the series at all. There are some quotes that come close. There's some that are similar, but there are none that are exactly like that. I tell you those examples because I think that so many people, so many of us do the exact same thing with the Bible. We assume that the Bible says something because we've heard it a certain way for so long, but it's actually not there. It actually doesn't say what you think it says, you know? And so in the series, you know, we, we've dug into several very familiar cliches and found out that the truth is really the exact opposite of what these statements are trying to say. And so today we're going to close it out uh, by digging into perhaps the most common and most familiar cliche that we hear thrown out a lot, and that is this, that God will never give you more than you can handle. God will never give you more than you can handle. We had, had, a, had an interesting experience with this. Uh, Jeff mentioned it one of the recent times when he gave communion, but him and I were talking this summer about something, and he goes, yeah, and he, he just mentioned, you know, man, like, yeah, like God will never give you more than you can handle. And I said, you know, that's not in the Bible, right? And so we had this, this conversation about it. Uh, you ever had somebody say this to you? God will never give you more than you can handle? probably came at a time when maybe you were overwhelmed, you were spread too thin, maybe you had just experienced a traumatic event. And I think with good intentions, this person is trying to encourage you and they're saying, hey man, like, like remember the Bible says, 
that God will never give you more than you can handle. And what they're essentially trying to communicate is this idea that the troubles we face in our lives are individually measured out by God in order to never cross the limit of what you can handle personally or I can handle personally. Like, this is what's going on. God's, God's measuring this out. Okay, well, well man, like, like, they can only handle this much and they can only handle that much. And so he's like individually measuring out all of this so that he never crosses the limit. Um, it's this idea, right, that, um, that is really meant to be encouraging. It's usually meant to reassure you that even though you may feel overwhelmed, you actually aren't overwhelmed. Like, like, you know, like because God would never give you more than you can handle, so you must be stronger than you think. And sadly, like this phrase that is often attributed to the Bible is actually not in there at all. Like it's, it's not in there. It, it's nowhere to be found in the Bible it's actually based on a misunderstanding of 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul is talking to the Corinthians about specifically temptation. Let me give you, this is, so this is the verse that people often base this uh, cliche on, and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna give you, um, I'm gonna give you a chance to look at it. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it, okay? Well, let me give you some context to this verse. It's really important because the context is not that God will, God will never give you more than you can handle, okay? And I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but the first place we start when we're trying to get context is you wanna read the verses that precede and the verses that follow. That's like the number one way you start. And then, you know, maybe you'll get into like a commentary or some, some support uh, resources or whatever like that, but, but really... Uh, we want to start looking like what happens before this verse, what happens afterwards. So we're not just lifting a verse, you know, out of, out of context um, and applying it to some sort of uh, situation. So in the preceding verses of, of, uh, from 13, Paul is specifically talking about Israel's sin uh, of idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God, grumbling. To be clear, he's not talking about trials and suffering. Right? He's talking about sin. And so the context here is specific to temptation. It's specific to immorality. And, you know, when we look at the context that surrounds the verse and the verses that follow even, we find that Paul is really talking about idolatry here. And so, so put this together because he says at the end of 13 that when you're tempted, he, God, will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. But look at what he says next in verse 14, the very next verse. He says, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. So he's not talking about trials and suffering here. He's talking about temptation to sin, temptation to, to idolatry, temptation towards you know, uh, sexual immorality and whatever the case. And, and so when you look at the context of this verse, like Paul is really addressing people who had recently converted from paganism and, and is telling them to avoid the temptation to return to their old practices and lifestyles including, specifically, the worship of idols. Now, look, sometimes when we talk about idolatry in, in, in the Old Testament or the New Testament, like, I, I see, like, everyone kind of get glazed over because it just doesn't feel very applicable. You know, like, you're sitting there trying to, trying to understand what it is, but, like, don't feel any level of temptation towards worshiping a tiny statue, and I get that. But, but, but idolatry is way more than that, way more than, like, bowing down to, like, an actual graven image or idol um, idolatry is anything that displaces God in our lives. 
So it can be things like money. It can be things like power, like security, like materialism, like sex, like sports, like, uh, uh, you know, yourself, prioritizing yourself, kids, influence, entertainment. The, the list just goes on and on and on and on. It's really anything that sits on the throne of our heart, and there can be more than one thing that sits there at one time. And so I just want you to know and understand this, that idolatry is not just some sort of ancient problem. It's still a big deal today. The the problem with today is is that idolatry is way more subtle. It's easier to justify, and it's easier to hide. Right? I mean, like, like there's not this big, like, totem pole or this big you know, 20-foot statue that we all gather around and, and, uh, and, and worship when the music goes off, right? Like, like in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's time, or, or uh, I'm sorry, um, yeah, it is Nebuchadnezzar's time. So um, it, it's, it's way easier to justify today. It's like, well, man, look at, like everybody else is like, this is, what, this is what you do. This is what life is like. And it's easier to hide, too, because I can, I can project an image of priorities, but, but really in my heart, like, I can have things that usurp the place of God in my heart and in my life. And so what Paul is doing here is he's basically telling people to not do that, to not rationalize sin, right? Like, like, like to not allow these things to displace God. He, he, he says, don't, he's saying like, don't rationalize this by going, man, everybody struggles. I, I struggle, they struggle. He's saying, don't, don't rationalize sin by saying, you know, it's, this is impossible for me to resist. I get it. It's not great, but like, man, it's impossible because he's, he's saying that's not true. God will always give you a way out of that temptation. In other words, look at this thought with me on the screen. Every time in your life, every single time you have ever succumbed to temptation, you didn't have to. You didn't have to because God will never let you face a temptation that has no possibility of escape. That's what this verse means. That's what Paul is talking about to the church in Corinth, that there is always a back door out of temptation. And this is the context of the verse that so many people have, have said and taken to mean, God will never give you more than you can handle. And it's just not true. It's just not true. It's true with temptation, specifically that of idolatry, but it's not true with all of life. It's not true with trials and suffering and hardship and challenges. That's just not True, because when you look at this cliche and you really evaluate it, it really puts forth a kind of theology that only really works in the West. Like try telling, you know, Christians in China who are facing persecution and death for their faith, hey man, God will never give you more than you can handle. Or try telling Christians in Afghanistan, right, who have been forced to watch their family members, their wives, their daughters be completely brutalized and murdered before facing the same fate themselves. Try telling them, hey, I don't ever give you more than you can handle. Or try telling an inmate at Auschwitz in World War II Nazi Germany, God will never give you more than you can handle. And those examples are just kind of the tip of the iceberg, you know, because um, we also have to consider things like terminal illness, death of a loved one, and the brutal effects of like mental health struggles that people face every single day. Like try telling this to someone who through no fault of their own is daily being crushed by depression or anxiety or other afflictions, hey man, God will never give you more than you can handle. It just doesn't work. In fact, if you're taking notes, like this idea that you'll, you will never face more than you can handle is the exact opposite to that of the biblical narrative. And I'm gonna explain that in a second. But it's also probably the exact opposite 
of your own life experience. Like I appreciate that, like I think the, the, the good-natured attempt to encourage a phrase like this brings, because it comes out of, I think, a good place in people's hearts, like to encourage you, like don't give up, you're gonna be all right. But like, quite honestly, I look at that and I go, well, I mean, my, like I appreciate it. My personal experience is I have, I, have, I have faced so many things that were too much for me to handle. Like overwhelmed, crushed, I have nothing left. Like how is this possible that God would never give me more than I can handle? Because I, like, I literally have nothing left. And, and the reality is you face that too. You know what that's like. And it's the exact opposite of that of the biblical narrative. You see, ever since the fall of man in the garden, humanity has had all kinds of trouble. <laughs> all kinds of struggle. Jesus made it clear, right, in John 16, that, that trouble was part of living in the world. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is what Jesus says to us. Like, this is part of what it takes, you know, and part of what the experience is like to live in this world. So I, I, wanna, I wanna just back up here for a second and just make something very, very, very clear because this phrase, God will never give you more than you can handle, it's like partially true, but not how you think it, it, might, it might be. It's true in the sense that God will not give you more than you can handle because God is not the giver of trouble. That is true. God will not give you. Yes, that's true, because he, he doesn't met this out in your life. But, but what is he? He's the giver of life. John 10, 10, very classically, the thief or the enemy comes to steal, uh, kill, steal, and, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the fullest or have it abundantly. But this doesn't mean that we never face things in life that we just can't handle. Like, it, it, it doesn't mean that. In fact, if you look at the Bible, if you look at the full sweep of Scripture from cover to cover, you will find that over and over again, it is riddled with stories and examples of people who constantly faced more than they could ever possibly imagine, more than they could handle. You think of Moses, right? God meets him, encounters him at the burning bush and tells him to go back to Egypt, right, to, to lead his people out of slavery, uh, Moses has, has basically like a speech impediment. Like he can't do that. He can't talk. Like he's just like, like in, you know, in front of Pharaoh like this. And he, and he tells God, like, I can't do that. I'm not, I'm not a good enough leader. I can't. And so God, God brings uh, Aaron as his assistant to help him with that. That's way more than Moses could handle. You think of Job. And I don't have to give you the whole story, but like you know, right? More than he could handle. Like way more. Crushing stuff. Gideon, classic story where, where the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and meets him when he's in the threshing floor uh, and, and, and says, um, God is with you, mighty warrior, to which Gideon looks behind him because he's like, are you talking to me? And he says, he says you've got to have me confused with someone because I am, the, I, I, I am uh, from the, the smallest clan uh, in Israel and I am the weakest of my clan. You've got to be talking to somebody else. And, and God, God tells him that he's going to be a mighty warrior who's going to lead Israel in victory over the Midianites. And, and Gideon's just like, that's impossible. There's no way. And what we hear and read in the story is, is that God supernaturally enables him to do the things that he's called to do. Elijah is another example. And we all know, like, Elijah was somebody who, I mean, was a giant, one of, one of like, the, the, the most pow I mean, powerful prophets that we read about. And, and uh, we read about his story um, in, uh, in 1 Kings 19, where he, uh, he, he calls down fire from heaven. Uh, he, he defeats all 800 prophets of Baal, and it's a mighty, powerful demonstration of the power of God in that moment. And then 
And then he, he runs, right? He leaves. And word catches up to him that Queen Jezebel is on his tail, wants him murdered. And, and he goes into freakout mode. He becomes overtaken by fear and depression. And he wants to die. Like he has just seen the power of God. And now he's out in the wilderness, like, you know, with no strength, depressed. And he asks God to take his life. He's overwhelmed. He's facing more than he can handle. And then when you think about King David, it's just another example of, you know, you look at his life, you know, in times where he's on the run and he's being hunted by King Saul. Think about times where like he finally is king and then his, his son Absalom rises up against him and tries to take the throne and David has to run for his life. He has to go, go you know, on the run. And, you know, you look at his, his story and there's tremendous tragedy over and over and over again. And then obviously his well-documented sin with Bathsheba ended up becoming more than he could handle Look what David says in Psalm 38, verse four. He says, and this is about his sin specifically with Bathsheba. He says, my guilt overwhelms me. My guilt overwhelms me. It is a burden too heavy to bear. Sounds like somebody who, who would uh, uh, be confused with the statement that God will never give you more than you can handle. And then four verses later, David says, I'm exhausted and completely crushed. My groans come from an anguished heart. That word anguish, it means to experience severe mental or physical pain and suffering. That's what he's communicating. He goes, I am, I'm dealing with like, like such a pain inside of me in my heart, like I can't even describe it to you. I'm overtaken by this. One of, uh, I think, the most classic examples uh, to kind of push back against this, this statement is um, an example that Paul gives the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 1. Uh, starting in verse eight, and he talks to them about a time where he was really at the end of his rope. And here's this giant, this man of faith, this guy who has written you know, over two-thirds of the New Testament, who's planted church after church after church that we read about. I mean, he is uh, one of our, uh, our, our heroes, right? He is somebody who has such a strong voice uh, in terms of teaching us how to live the Jesus life. But uh, here's what he says in, in 2 Corinthians 1, 8. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia, for we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. So what Paul's doing here is he's saying, hey, like, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to like, think for a minute that like, life is just always good and always great and always easy. And because I'm like, a, you know, because you know, he has a reputation at this point, and they could think, well, man, God is always with Paul. Paul's been getting like, these incredible revelations from God, and he's been passing them on to church after church. And people could assume, well, man, he's got a direct line. God must be like, like, kind of paving the way, making every crooked path straight for him. And he's saying, I don't want you to be uninformed <laughs> about hardships that we have suffered um, I don't want you to be uninformed about how hard it was when the pressures of life came down on us because he's going, man, it was so bad that we did not think we were gonna make it. One translation says, you know, we despaired for our life. So, some, tra some theologians have suggested uh, that as Paul is experiencing all of this, a great depression has even come over him, um, not seeing any hope whatsoever. And, and several theologians have, have, have uh, suggested that he may have even felt suicidal. Here in this verse. No desire to live any more. It's this feeling that, hey man, it's all over. There's no hope. He goes on in verse nine and he says, indeed in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. He, they were sure of it. They were sure that they were about to die. And he says this, and it's incredible. He says, but this happened 
that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Who raises the dead. And so he's acknowledging here, right, that he's been given a heavy burden to bear. He's recognizing that the circumstances in his life are pretty bad. He's acknowledging here that he's overwhelmed. He doesn't know what to do. He's facing more than he can handle to the point that death sounded better than life. You don't need to raise your hand, but have you ever, ever, ever been there? You ever, you ever, you ever, you ever considered that? That death sounded better than life. And, and, and then he goes on, he says, but the purpose of all of this was really to teach us how to rely on God instead of ourselves. He's like, man, we just thought we had what it, what it, you know, what it takes. We thought we could, we could do this on our own. He is saying here that since, since God, our God, is the one who raises the dead, there's nothing he can't do. And so when you're overwhelmed and you're in despair, he's trying to say like, yeah, we've learned that we need to rely on him and not on us. Like that was the lesson learned. Like we were trying to do this in our own strength and our own ability. And he's saying, hey, when I think about the fact that my God conquered death, that my God raises the dead, I'm reminded that there's nothing he can't do in my life. And so when I'm up against it, when I think there is no hope, when I think there is no way out, when I think that life is literally falling apart, like take courage, you know, take hope in the fact that he has done the impossible before and he can do the impossible again. And so I wanna, I wanna catch, uh, give you this thought on, on this. Um, if you're taking notes, the statement that God never, will never give you more than you can handle, it's really a flawed statement because it's all about what you can do. It's all about what you can do or what I can do. And what he's saying here is, look, like, man, we've tried. We've tried it. We've tried relying on ourselves, and it's caused things to go terribly wrong. We thought we were finished, dead. Like, you know, we knew that we couldn't handle it because it was beyond our strength. That's what he's acknowledging here. He's saying, but all of that, all that we went through, was really to remind us that we should have placed all of our confidence in God in the first place and not in ourselves. And he's kind of just acknowledging, like, I don't, I'm not exactly sure how this happened, but somewhere along the way, we just decided, hey, we could, we could figure this out. And he's saying that, that when he was in this moment and he found out that he did not have the strength to face his own suffering on his own, that that was when he found that God's power and God's faithfulness was completely sufficient to provide what he needed. And here's what I think. Here's why I think this matters. That's why I think Paul's story is classic, and I think it's why it still applies to us today, if you're taking notes. Because, because of our tendency to rely on and trust in ourselves, I think that God will at times allow us to face more than we can handle in an effort to help us reorient ourselves to who he is and what he has done. Again, he's not the bringer of trouble. He's not the causer of all of these things, but I think sometimes he just allows us. Like, in other words, like if, we, if we want to try it ourselves on our own, like he'll let us. I've talked um, uh, a few different times over the years about uh, like what hell really is because I think we get that mixed up. We think that hell is, is, is a place that God sends people that he's mad at. That's not true. Hell is really a place where you can pay for your sins if you want to. And it's, it's this idea that God, you know, God is kind of just like, man, I don't want that for you, but I'll, I'll pull my hand back and let you try it on your own if you want. This is what's going on here too. Uh, where, where, where it really is this idea, like we go through these things, God sometimes allows us because we wanna try it on our, on, on, on our own. And he's saying, man, if, if you wanna try it yourself, like I'll let you give it a shot, I guess. And because of our sin nature, like we do this a lot, right? It, it seems to be really our default mode. That's why, that's why like our, our, our discipleship and our sanctification is so important. It's like, man, because there is this default mode of self-sufficiency and independence from God. We want to try things rather than allowing his power, the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in every believer to replace 
our weakness with his strength. And we naturally try to handle things, you know, on our own. And then he goes on in verse 10, and, and Paul says, and he's talking about God, and he did rescue us from mortal danger, and he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him, and he will continue to rescue us. And so what, what you might have missed is like he's revealing here is that he is in a tough situation once again, right? That the example he's been using in the, in the previous few verses is, 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 is a true story that once happened that he's telling the church in Corinth about. He's telling them a story. At one time, you know, we were facing this. And, and, and so what, what he's saying here in verse 10 is that even though we are once again in a situation that is too much for us to handle, we have been here before and we've seen God's power. He's, he's delivered us before and he's gonna deliver us again. He's rescued us before, he's gonna rescue us again. He's saying, I have firsthand knowledge and experience with this. There was a time when I was facing too much to handle and I thought I was about to die. Now, it's not like the situation's any better. I'm still facing a situation that's too much to, too much to handle, but I know that my God can raise the dead. He can do the impossible. And so because of what I'm experiencing right now, I will have faith in him and in his goodness to carry me through and to deliver me. He's rescued me before, he'll rescue me again. Look at it this way. Again, uh, on the screen here, it might be more than you can handle. That might be true, but it's never more than God can handle. It actually might be out of your hands. It might actually be impossible for you, but it's never impossible for him. See, God doesn't give us what we can handle. God helps us handle what we are given. That's different, distinctly different. I wanna give you another example here in Paul's life. Um, it's in the same book, two chapters later, Paul mentions this like ongoing difficulty that he had faced for a really long time. Uh, it was too much for him to handle. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, uh, he, says, you know, he says this, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly uh, great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. So he, he, you've probably heard this phrase, like Paul had this thorn in his side or this thorn in his flesh. Um, it, and he says it was given to him um, and describes it specifically as a messenger of Satan. So it's not, it's not that this is like, um, you know, like, like, a, like, a, like a, uh, an actual, you know, like a demon that's like coming after him. Um, but what it is, 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 is an acknowledgement that this is something that did not come from God, it's come from the devil. Okay? This is something that he's battling uh, that did not come from God. And he says in verse eight, there was three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me I said, man, I don't, I don't want this. This is horrible. What I'm experiencing is terrible. He says, but, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's a lot of speculation on what the thorn in the flesh actually was. Um, some theologians think it might have been a, a form of illness or ailment physically in his body, you know, uh, that he was going around with, and he just wanted God to take the pain away, heal his body, and it never came. So, some uh, have suggested that maybe it's, it was like a sin that he continued to struggle with, even into, you know, his, his, uh, uh, his years of following God. Um, some, some might think it was his conscience because prior to uh, following Jesus, he had persecuted even Christians and that that was something that, that like maybe, maybe weighed on him as he, as he lived life. Some people think it, it might have been the fact that he was becoming blind 
and, and losing his eyesight. We don't really know, but regardless of what it is, it's clear that Paul doesn't want it and that he has pleaded with God to take this away. And now, if, I mean, have you, have you ever, ever been at a time like this with God? Like if you live for really any length of time, you know that you're gonna face something that will cause you to plead with God to take it away. And he won't take it away. So maybe it's like a cancer diagnosis, maybe it's like some financial struggles, marriage problems, kids that are far from God, and you're just like, man, God, I want you to take this away. I can't care, I can't do this anymore, I can't handle it. And the tension we feel is that we know that he can fix these things, and yet he doesn't. And it even at times seems like he does it for other people, but he doesn't do it for me. Like, what's that all about? Like, I, like you know, you hear like a praise report or an answer to prayer testimony, and you're like, awesome. And you're like, like when is it my turn, you know? Like, and, and you don't want to be weird because you know God sees your heart. And you're like, you know, I mean, it's just, you just, just struggle with all that, right? And we are told here in these scriptures that, that his power, God's power, is made perfect in weakness, that when we are weak, then he is strong. Paul is saying also here, look, I've wanted this to be taken away from me for so long. I've wanted God to deliver me and to heal me, to take this from me. He says, but now my perspective is this, that now I actually delight in the hard stuff. Because when I don't have what it takes, that is when like, I find like me coming to the end and God taking over and I'm now tapping into a power that goes beyond my human ability to understand. He says, so, I, so now I, I've, I've changed my mind and I'm actually delighting in these things, even though you know, I would prefer God to take it from me. This is why in Romans 8, 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He says, what we're dealing with now is nothing compared to what we will receive. He goes, our... our uh, um, our struggles, you know, uh, our, our present struggles, momentary struggles are nothing compared to the, the glory that awaits us. And so what I have found to be true in my own life, right, is that when I have the least to bring, you know, when I'm exhausted, I'm depleted physically, it just seems like that's when God's power works best. I'm not saying we should burn out. I'm not trying, we should, saying we should try to run on empty, any of that kind of stuff. All I know is that when I'm, when I'm, when I'm pretty sure I, I don't have what it takes, like, like that's when God's power seems to work best in my life. Look at this thought here. Um, our trials and sufferings are not a measure. It's important to learn this and to know this. Our trials and suffering are not a measure of how much we can handle. They are not something we are expected to face apart from God. Nor are, they, nor are they tests sent by God to us, but rather these are intended to be places in which we see and encounter God. That's, what it, that's, what, that's, that's how God works together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. It's not that God sent this for your good, it's that he works it together for your good. And in your moment of struggle, in your moment of hardship, he shows up. And he is someone that we encounter in those times. And this is what happens with Paul because he's staring down death. He's staring down something hard again and yet he remembers back and he encounters the Lord all over again. I think it's very common for people to find God in the times where they are at the end of their rope. Wouldn't you agree? 
like people, you know, as a pastor, I, I meet people on their deathbed. I've, I've done this m- multiple times. And it's like, they're pretty receptive to God. You know, it's like, we're not talking about how, you know, how their closet needs organized, you know, at, at that moment. Like, we're talking about real things. And, and it's when people are, are going, huh, I, I thought I knew what life was all about. But maybe as I'm approaching the end, maybe I don't. And I think that, like, there's so many people, you know, who... Um, seem to find God or be open to God when they're at the end of their rope. But on, on the flip side, it feels like for a lot of us, when life is good, we can have a lower felt need and desire for God. When life's good, like I think we can tend to overlook God in some ways. But interestingly, like we never overlook him when we are distressed. We never overlook him in those moments of, of, of difficulty. I think it's often in the places of pain and suffering that we end up finding and encountering God. It just is. I, I think back to 2001, 9-11, a lot of you, um, unless you weren't alive, <laughs> which is becoming a thing now, like, like oh, you weren't alive back then. Um, but, uh, man, I was a senior in high school. I was like, I knew exactly where I was when this happened, and um, you guys remember the fallout, the, the, the days that followed. You remember uh, that, that very next Sunday, uh, churches were packed all over the country. Um, they say that like an estimate, you know, each week in, on Sundays, there's about, you know, 15 to 20% of Americans are in church. In the Sunday that, that followed 9-11, over, over 50% of the country was in church that day. Why? Like, you'll remember, right? There was a, there was a outpouring. Like, people were, like, interested in God. They were like, come on. Like, I, like I, I may not have it all together. People thought the world was coming to an end, right? I mean, it just was nuts. And because there is this, uh, Ecclesiastes 3 says that God has, has, has planted eternity in the hearts of man. And so there is this, there's this, this, uh, uh, part in us that's put in there by our maker that was responding to the moment and people are going like, I need to get in touch with God. And so here, here's what I want you to see. I think often when something comes into our lives that is bigger than we can handle, a desire for God will emerge. You know, you know what this is like, right? Like, I mean, hey God, like I'm in, I'm in trouble again. Like, <laughs> I need you. You know, it's like the classic example of like, hey, God, if you save me from this, I will never do anything bad ever again in my life. Like, I, you know, I will turn. It's because, it's because, man, when you're facing something that's just big, you're like, ah, oh, there is a desire for God in your life that, that grows, that emerges. And I think that that's part of how God works together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to to his purpose. Look at this next thought. Our faithfulness to Jesus is not demonstrated by how well we can handle the burdens that come our way. Our faith is demonstrated by, by this. Look, our recognition that we cannot handle the burdens of life ourselves, and so we trust in the grace of God who faces them with us. Like, we're not alone in this. And we understand that if we, if we are alone, if we try to do this on our own, I mean, how ridiculous. Like, I mean, the odds are stacked against us, but when we face life and the hurdles of life, the struggles of life with God, I mean, the odds are in our favor, right? And so, you know, I've, uh, you guys can, uh, Tim, go ahead and come on up, but I, I've already mentioned, you know, that all throughout Scripture, we come across story after story of people who are overwhelmed by what they're facing. Story after story, time after time. 
But I think that there is no greater example than that of Jesus. No greater example. There's, there's several examples we can, we can find where Jesus is literally at the end of his rope. He's got nothing left. In fact, we first see an example of this in Luke 22, where he's in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he would be betrayed. And it says, it says that uh, in, in, in Luke 22, 41, that he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. These are the words of Jesus. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. So, so what's he asking for? He knows that he's about to go to the cross within 24 hours. And he is asking his father if there's another way. He doesn't want to do this. Like sometimes we get this picture in our mind of like how, you know, God became flesh, like, and, and he came down here and he lived this perfect sinless life because he was on a mission. And finally here at the end, like, man, he just, he was laser focused on, on completing what he had come here to do. And, and it's not that like his heart had changed or his desire to like save the world had changed, but there is clearly this human element to Jesus because he's not just God, he's also man. And he knows what he's about to experience and the abandonment and the fear and the pain and all of that stuff. And he's just talking to his father and he's, and he's saying, if you're willing, please take this cup from me. Is there another way to do this? But then he surrenders himself and he says, yet not my will, but yours be done. Verse 43, it says, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. I love that. That's a, talk about the father being a good father. He sends an angel to strengthen Jesus. In verse 44, and here's the word again, and being in anguish, right? Severe, you know, sort of mental and physical pain. He prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. You, you read uh, commentaries on this, a lot of theologians um, describe this as like an overwhelming anxiety, like a panic attack. He has a deep desire for God to take this from him. And so he's pleading with God. He's overwhelmed. And yet he submits. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's, it's incredible. Next, we see him the very next day. We see him on the cross, suffering as darkness has come across the whole land. Matthew 27 says about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's about to breathe his last breath. He feels completely abandoned by his father. His friends have deserted him. He is overwhelmed. We see him leading up to this where he says, he says, Father, he goes, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Like, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. On the cross, it's, it's an important picture because on the cross, he's overwhelmed, right? He has feelings of abandonment by everyone he has loved. And, and I think that this picture of the cross is important to us. You know, as like evangelicals, you know, um, Protestant Christians, you know, when, if we want to wear the, the cross, it, it usually is a cross that does not have Jesus on it. It's not a crucifix, it's a cross. But having, and so, so we, we, we sometimes don't, don't sit with that picture very often of Jesus actually on the cross. And it's really important that we do at times because, because that picture of Jesus on the cross, not as a conquering king, but as, 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 a, as a man who, 
And, and, and as one who has uh, sacrificed his life for us, that's an important picture that we, we hold at times. This, this cross with Jesus still on it, where we see the Son of God suffering things like pain and humiliation and injustice and violence and all of this stuff to the point of death. The reason why that's important is because this picture of the cross reminds us not only of the brokenness of the world, but it also reminds us that in those times of suffering and pain, we are not alone, right? We have a God who stands with us in the suffering, a God who is not apart from that burden and pain, but one who is in it with us. It's really, we picture that. Which is why the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew are so good. Because we can think, man, okay, God will never give me more than I can handle. In other words, like God has given this burden to me somehow, and now I gotta figure out what to do with it, and I feel like I got nothing. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 11. He says, hey, you're overwhelmed, you got nothing left. He says, hey, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, I'm gonna give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you, you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My burden is light. It's not this, this, this heavy, you know, Life. It's not this burdensome life. I, di I didn't come to bring that to you. I, come to, I came to break the yoke of the law. I came, I came to remove that off your back. I came to bring you a light burden. And this is why I love Psalm 55, and there's other verses like this, but it says, hey, give your burdens to the Lord. Give your burdens to the Lord, and he will take care of you. This is what we are called to do. This is what we are invited into, a transference of like the burdens and the things we carry that are too much for us to handle, the overwhelming nature of life, we are able to give these over to Jesus who has much bigger shoulders than we do. And he's able to give us a light load while he takes the heavy load. And so last thought, like God doesn't give us what, what we can handle, God helps us handle what we are given. Would you stand with me? Would you just bow your heads for just a quick moment here? I appreciate your patience and just sticking with me on this, but I'd love to just encourage you with some prayer uh, this morning. And um, your head, head's bowed, all that, just you and the Lord here. Um, if you've been dealing with, with some things that you would describe as like, yeah, this is more than I can handle. Um, it's too much. And there's a sense of, of feeling overwhelmed and, and, and that the burden is heavy, I'd love to encourage you in some prayer. Can I just see your hand um, if that's you today? Several of you. Several. Several. So Father, I thank you. Man, I thank you that you are strong, that you are good, that you are able, that you're so capable, that you are the God who raises the dead. You're the God who raises the dead. You're the God of the impossible. And so, Lord, I just speak over every person here, maybe who, who is downcast in their soul, who's facing some discouragement, something that feels impossible. Maybe there's a diagnosis or a broken relationship. Fear has overcome them at times, even in recent days or recent weeks. Lord, I speak to that spirit, that troubling spirit, 
you will knock it off. You will stop tormenting people. Freedom in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray for clarity of thought. Now, clarity in the mind. And God, I ask that you would step in and that you would literally and figuratively raise the dead. You'd breathe life into things that seem lifeless right now. Every agenda, every assignment from the enemy towards death and destruction, towards confusion and all of those things, we cancel those assignments out and we send them to the foot of the cross in Jesus' name. Hmm. And then just for anybody who would just acknowledge, you know, hey, Pastor Jordan, you know, like I have for sure been just trying to do a lot of things on my own, in my own ability and in my own strength. And I just need, I need, I need to cast my cares on God. I need to transfer some of these things over to Jesus. Can I just see you today, if that's you? Tendency to just go at it alone? A tendency to just over-rely on yourself? Yeah. God, I thank you that this isn't the Christian life. This isn't the expectation. This isn't the abundant life that you bled and died for. And so, God, I pray right now, just, just would you just uh, heal us from this, this need to perform or this need to figure things out ourselves? God, I thank you that you invite us to a life of reliance upon you. And so God, right now, I just pray freedom for every person here who just thinks they have to manhandle, thinks they have to put their hand on the wheel, thinks they gotta figure this out themselves. I thank you, God, that there is a better way, there is a better life. And we come before you now, God, and we just, we just call upon you, the one who brings freedom, the one who brings wholeness, the one who brings life. And God, would you just minister those things to every person today under the sound of my voice. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen and amen. And amen.